You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I think this sheet will help to to guide our thoughts. Um, Do you remember when uh, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, where Jesus fed the 5,000, remember he drew an analogy between the bread that was being distributed and the manna from heaven as the bread of life. And then he took it a step further and he said, he got intense with the message, that unless you eat this bread and drink this cup, there's no life in you. Unless you eat this bread, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, there's no life in you. Well, to the Jewish ears, that was an atrocious comment, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus at that moment was setting up the most profound metaphor possible, that he indeed was the bread of life, embodied, and that his blood was the cleansing blood like the Passover lamb, that he embodied that. His body and his blood were essential for salvation. The church, you know, has struggled over the meaning of that. The meaning of the real presence of Christ in the celebration of the Eucharist, in the bread and in the cup. And that's what we seek to clarify in these next few moments together. It's a big, heavy, important topic. It's heavy and it's important because it's all about the atoning sacrifice of Christ what Christ did for us to provide our salvation and our redemption. You hear words today like sacramental or you're watching a movie and the movie is redemptive. It's interesting how we have come to use language that had a very specific theological meaning. We've come to use it kind of loosely uh, that when something's meaningful, we may say, well, it has sacramental significance. But I'm going to suggest to you that these words really mean something very specific. That the sacrament is uh, God's grace extended to us in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. I I explain that in that first paragraph. Uh, Worship is anchored in the identifying act of baptism and in the praise and fellowship of Holy Communion. Baptism seals our solidarity with Christ and the Eucharist signifies the real presence of Christ in us and for us. Through these two sacraments, the body of Christ is set apart and nourished by the saving, sanctifying, and sustaining grace of the triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That which God ordained for our strength and unity must be embraced and celebrated, not debated and neglected. Let's pray. Lord God, in these few moments together, we ask that you would guide our understanding. Thank you for these, my sisters and brothers in Christ. We pray that we might grow deeper in our relationship with you and with one another. Help us now as we reason from your word. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, Under the introduction, 
The mysteries of God are not to be confused with the mystique of an individual's spiritual journey. In other words, what is being offered here uh, at the Advent is an understanding that's deeply historical, rooted in the truth of the church, rooted in the truth of the gospel. And I think that these sacraments should clarify for those of you who are questioning whether or not to become members of the Advent, the membership is based on the fact that a person has come to terms with accepting the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an outward sign of an inward <coughs> grace and relationship with the living God. And you affirm by that that you really believe in these great invisibles. Great invisible truths that you have grasped and accepted. That indeed God came in the flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You've come to believe in the incarnation. And you've come to believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that we do not merit salvation, we receive salvation by his grace. And signs of that, sacraments of that, are manifest in baptism and the Lord's table. The word in the Gospels is the, it speaks of the mysteries of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 describes himself as stewardship of the mysteries of God. Not because it's mysterious. Not because it's open to a variety of explanations or truths. He, saw, he claimed the word mystery for that which did not get its source in us. It does not have a human source. It is God speaking. It's God's revelation. That's what makes him a steward of the mysteries of God. I think in our age, you know, you know as well as I do, of the profound uh, kind of confusion over people's spiritual journeys and what they find is true and what they believe is true. These chairs are tricky. They'll kill you. <laughs> um, and there's just this, uh, you know, we're so subjective and uh, defined by what we think is important or what we think is redemptive. Uh, and I would suggest to you that the Advent stands over against that and says, uh, we're not espousing a particular point of view. We're, we're not coming up with a certain kind of understanding. Uh, we are submitting to the revelation of God. And that's what makes uh, the mystery the mystery, that we haven't invented it, we haven't speculated about it, we have received it. And number two, the New Testament does not argue a case for either baptism or Lord's Supper. It's interesting that you read the New Testament and it's just, it's just what you do. <laughs> it's not something you debate. It's not there to argue over. It's just the practice. Um, and... Uh, Number three, Christ and the cross revolutionized and fulfilled the Passover. We move from the Passover to the Eucharist. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And again, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Or you proclaim his death until he comes. I think that's a beautiful and wonderful way of framing I mean, uh, uh, the Lord's table is that it's not the pastors proclaiming. It's the body of Christ gathered that proclaims Christ's death until he comes. Number four, the early church incorporated the celebration of the Lord's Supper into their daily worship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And that... uh, universally understood by uh, New Testament scholars, by biblical people from the early first century, the breaking of the bread was a euphemism, a metaphor for celebrating the Lord's table. Uh, What I'm trying to sort of say, indirectly I guess, is that the church didn't find it problematic, they didn't find it controversial, they found it just normal. It's part of their process. This is how we worship Number five, the Apostle Paul linked the Lord's Supper to our participation in the death of Christ. He wrote, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's interesting because uh, sometimes I think we are confused as to the meaning of that. As if, like today, if you're in the 11 o'clock, well, 11 o'clock service is morning prayer. So we've already passed on the illustration. Um, But you don't have to sit there thinking, am I worthy to receive Holy Communion today? I think in that sense, if that's your question, then none of us are worthy to receive. Um, The question is not, the question about practice here of eating and drinking the Eucharist in an unworthy manner is, in the Corinthian context, is the question of, as a body of Christ, are we celebrating this Holy Communion with the right kind of truth, the proclamation of the gospel, and with the right kind of practice of a gospel life? That's what makes the celebration of Holy Communion correct or not correct, it is word and sacrament. And the word, properly preached, defines the meaning of the table, the meaning of Eucharist. In the uh, situation in Corinth, they were eating it according to social class. So the rich ate it separately from the poor. Well, you can, you can understand why Paul went ballistic over that. They were reinforcing their social class distinctions in how they worshipped. And so it was a violation of the body of Christ. And that's why he got so upset with the Corinthians, that they were reinforcing their own social eliteness. Um, I used to think, and I, I express this later, but I used to think as a teenager that I needed to bring a certain passion to the table. I, I kind of needed to work up my emotions because this was really important. This was serious. And uh, so I would even mentally, graphically think of 
um, Christ's passion and his sacrifice and the violence of the cross. I didn't go as far as Mel Gibson in The Passion of Christ, but sort of that thing of mentally getting there. And then I, I went to, uh, this was in college, and a missionary from Latin America who uh, was struggling with communicating the gospel in an almost superstitious, sort of indigenous, syncretistic Christian realm. And he's struggling with communicating the gospel. And he showed us about 100 pictures of the crucifix in Latin American art. And the, in gory detail, showing just sort of this, this intense suffering. And the missionary made this point. It is not the passion we bring to the celebration of Holy Communion that makes it important. It's the passion that Christ has brought to the table. That it's his life that has been given. Uh, and that really freed me up to just come to the table and revel in Christ's passion for me. Christ's passion for us rather than my passion for the faith. And it, I had transformed the way that I, I saw it. And I think... I think the New Testament practices a focus on Christ, not on my subjective self. Do I think that prayers of confession leading up to the table are important? Most certainly. Do I think it's a time of self-examination? Most certainly. Uh, but I don't think the focus is on the individual, but it is on the body of Christ. It's on the people of God that are gathered um, and in the Hebrew mind, uh, the community comes first and then the individual. In our Western way of thinking, it's the individual first and then the community. Uh, and I think that we need to rethink that. Uh, so it's not so much on the subjective self, but of what God has done in Christ. Visible sign and spiritual value. The Old Testament prepared us for these sacraments. Uh, by providing visible signs of the will of God, such as the altar of sacrifice, circumcision, which uh, is a prelude to baptism, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the Passover meal, these object lessons of redemption pointed to the grace of God. The church has struggled with the relationship between the outward sign and the inward spirituality, spiritual reality. Number two, the debate over what the real presence of Christ means in the Lord's Supper comes late in the history of the church. For a thousand years, we pretty much practiced the faith without that becoming an issue. The sacraments do not bestow grace on the believer, but serve as a means of recognizing and affirming the grace of Christ in the life of the believer. In the medieval church, if you didn't see the priest hold up the host and see it. So you didn't, want to, you didn't want to be seated or standing behind a column. Then there was no efficacious value for the celebration. You needed to see the priest hold up the host. Uh, the sacraments helped to define this grace rather than dispense it. Uh, number three, Anglican pastor and missionary John Stott describes what we need when we celebrate the Lord's table. And this is very succinct and very helpful to me. First, 
We need such a faithful reading and preaching of God's word that through it, his living voice is heard addressing his people again. That's what we need when we celebrate the Lord's table. We need the word clearly expounded in a way that helps us come to the table in the truth of the gospel. Second, we need such a reverent and expectant administration of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper that, and I says I choose my words carefully, there is, and it should be a definite article in front of the, uh, in front of real, there is the real presence of Jesus Christ. His presence is not in the elements, but among his people and at his table. Jesus Christ himself objectively and really present, coming to meet us, ready to make known to us through the breaking of bread and anxious to give himself to us so that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith. So what is the real presence? It's the presence of Christ in you, Christ in me. Christ in us. That's the real presence around the table. It's not in the bread. It's not in the wine. It's in us. Not because there's any sort of meritorious aspect to us, but because of his grace and because of his mercy. It doesn't seem like there should be a lot of confusion about that, but boy has the history of the church argued over it and struggled over it. Um, Third, we need such a sincere offering of praise and prayer that God's people say with Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. And unbelievers present will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. I believe that the most effective form of evangelism, of sharing the gospel, is Christians really worshiping. Really practicing their faith in the company of believers, I think is a compelling witness uh, to the presence of Christ. Timothy Tennant, who's the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, says that he can kind of tell, just walking into a church, whether there is a vibrant and vital understanding of who Jesus Christ is. You can just sort of, it, it's kind of like in the air. <laughs> you can kind of understand it. Uh, I pray that for the Advent, when we come to worship, that there is a vital, vibrant, compelling sense that Christ is real, Christ is present. Uh, and that comes to a climax in the celebration of Holy Communion. So experiencing the sacraments today, uh, the seriousness with which the church has approached baptism and the Lord's Supper throughout its history challenges the casual and almost cavalier attitude evidenced by many believers today. Like the disciples in the upper room or the early Christians at Corinth, we are distracted by peripheral things that do not count for the kingdom and don't, do not deepen our worship of Christ. Number two, we may be inclined to judge the efficacy of the sacrament. This is where I was discussing earlier. We judge the efficacy of the sacrament on our subjective feelings. I remember as a teenager feeling the burden of working up my emotions. 
whenever we celebrated the Lord's Supper, I felt the need to bring a certain passion to Holy Communion. But I was relieved of that burden when I realized that the passion to be focused upon was not mine, but Christ's. His actions, rather than my feelings, made the sacrament meaningful. Three, Christians from all traditions can become sacrilegious. It's taken some wise people in my life that have emphasized sacrilegious can go, sacrilege can go up and it can go down. You can overdo it or you can be too casual. You want to strike a balance um, between spiritualizing and secularizing the table. In some churches that I go to, I almost feel like uh, baptism and the Lord's table is audience participation. You know, it's just something to do to get everybody involved. And it is not, the word and sacrament aren't central to the truth of the gospel. Um, and maybe exploration into number three would be more better one-on-one -on -one, um, than in a group. Number four, the powerful message of unity in Christ ought to be demonstrated in our celebration of the sacraments. Augustine, the early church father in uh, the three to four hundreds, uh, he, about 50 in the 300s, 50 in the 400s, uh, he wrote this. And I believe that this captures the symbolism of the unity of the table. The body of Christ, you are told, and you answer, Amen. Be members then of the body of Christ that your Amen may be true. Why is this mystery accomplished with bread? We shall say nothing of our own about it. Rather, let us hear the apostle, who speaking of the sacrament says, We who being many are one body, one bread. Understand and rejoice. Unity, devotion, charity, one bread. And what is this one bread? One body made up of many? Now for the chalice, my brethren. Remember how wine is made. Many grapes hang on the bunch. But the liquid runs out of them, mingles together in unity. So had the Lord willed that we should belong to him, and he has consecrated on his altar the mystery of our peace and unity. Augustine saw in the celebration of the Lord's table a great symbol of the one faith, one baptism, one body of believers, one Lord, one faith, and that oneness symbolized in the bread and in the cup. And then finally, our earnest prayer, number five, is that our union in Christ, the hope of glory, may be affirmed and experienced anew through the celebration of the sacraments. May the Holy Spirit use these Christ-inspired sacraments to strengthen our faith, challenge us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. I'm quoting here from Colossians 2, one of my favorite texts for the household of faith. It begins, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You know, there's so much in our day and age about identity. This is our identity. This is our primary identity. God's holy, chosen, and dearly loved people. 
I think this is a beautiful way of capturing who we are because we come from all over, all over the map um, and all over backgrounds. Some of us have had terrible families and we're drawn into the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are holy, called, chosen, dearly loved people. And that's our identity now in Christ. And Paul goes on, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience. Put on the clothing. Take off the old self, put on the new self. Bear with one another. And forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That the model of forgiveness is Christ's forgiveness of us. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another, as we teach and admonish one another, and as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our heart to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's just such a beautiful and concise description of what we're about and who we are. And that's what, in in becoming a member of the Advent, you're you're signing on to that. You're affirming that, that that is indeed what you believe. uh, And that's your confession. Uh, well, I've talked really consistently. <laughs> uh, uh, questions, thoughts, ideas that that you'd like to surface in the light of this? Yes. What's the origin of the term passion? that describes the crucifixion. It's, it's an unusual term. And you were talking about it yourself. It's, it's, I'm just curious as to where that term comes from. Well, I, yeah, it, it, it's not per se in the New Testament. Right. Um, so it's a term that encompasses the uh, everything from, I think, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday uh, to... Um, the crucifixion, and then uh, in the grave, and then Easter Sunday, and that's the Passion. So it, it's that encompasses the, the the total event of Christ and His atoning sacrifice and the victory of the resurrection. Um, if you know, in the in the study of the upper room discourse, which I think is. Jesus' graduate school of discipleship, uh, that John 13 through 17. Uh, there's uh, four, four uh, realities that I think are the basis of all comfort uh, for the Christian. Um, that's the pa- one of the passages begins with, um, um, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If that weren't true, I wouldn't be telling you this. Um, his presence... And then the passion, he's giving, he describes him giving himself up. And then he gives the Holy Spirit 
which is the Greek term is paraclete, which is like advocate. I think lawyer. I don't think Hallmark card. Um, so you've got the presence, the passion, the paraclete, and then the parousia, which is the Greek term for the second coming. These four are the fundamental foundation realities that we have within the church to comfort one another. His presence, abide in me, I'll abide in you. His passion, the paraclete, and then the parousia, the coming again of Christ. Yes? I've got a question. You, you mentioned uh, under the stock quote the, actual, the argument between the church of the presence. Of the real presence. The real presence. So can you dive deeper into that? With the, is it physically being there or a No, it's not. I mean, it. Um, or what the argument with well, the argument over, you know, the transubstantiation argument, the consubstantiation, now, you've, now I'm just going to confuse you all. Um, <laughs> but uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval Roman Catholic theologian, uh, argued that Christ actually was in the material. That through a supernatural act, just like we believe in the incarnation, fully God, fully human, carried that over into... That, and that's why, you know, the, the bread now becomes just really holy and the, the wine can't be poured down the drain. Uh, it's got to be fully, con you know, you get into all that kind of debate over the elements. Uh, and then Martin Luther came along and it's not transubstantiation but consubstantiation that somehow there's a mingling here uh, of these elements between that which is divine and that which is human. Um, Calvin comes along and basically says, well, it's not just a sign, like Zwingli. There's something more profound that's taking place here, but it has nothing to do with the physicality or the materiality of the elements. So don't worry about that. But that Christ is making himself real here. Um, if you've come from a Baptist tradition, you know that sacrament isn't a favorite word. Uh, the sign is, you know, these are signs of God's grace. Um, I probably personally have a more Zwinglian view of, uh, and I just find it really ironic that you'd ask a Presbyterian to give the inquirer's class on the Eucharist. <laughs> I guess that's a sign of the, the sign of the ecumenical nature of the Advent, uh, where the gospel is central. Um, and that's why I'm quoting an Anglican when I talk about the real presence being the body of Christ. You and me at the table. This is where Christ is present. And it's signified uh, in the most profound and holy way by the bread and the cup. Uh, Rita, you had a question? Anyone else? By the way, I had determined that I would not say that I was a Presbyterian. Um, but you know how it is. You always say what you've determined not to say. Uh, well, as a Presbyterian, I'm thankful that you uh, relayed your feelings about trying to manifest the passion. Mm -hmm. I, can, I was also trained that way, I guess. Yeah. I, well, there's, there's two ways I think I was trained. I was trained that it was a very individualistic experience. 
It was very much me and God, and that I had to have the proper frame of mind. And I guess uh, being a pastor for a lot of years now, it's just been really freeing to think more in terms of the household of faith as a body of Christ coming before the Lord than the individual. Oh, that, that's like the school buzzer. <laughs> uh, I'll pray. Lord God, thank you for this time together uh, with your saints, with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Please bless them on their decision-making with respect to this body of believers. Uh, Please guide them in your truth and in your way and in your providence. Uh, Together we give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.